All righty, we are continuing our sermon series uh, through the Old Testament. We've been looking at over this summer at a number of Old Testament stories, and uh, it's called Great Stories. And the, the goal of this sermon series has been to look at these stories and ask, what do they have to do with us today? How do we not only know the story, but then how does this story point us to Jesus? And, and how do we apply some of the themes and, and qualities that we see in this story lived out? And so today we come to a really beautiful story that I've actually never preached on before. And that's the book of Esther. The book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, it's uh, right towards the middle of the Old Testament, just before the book of Psalms, a little bit before the book of Psalms. I'm going to be uh, telling you the entire story, but if you got your Bible open to the Esther chapter 1, you can kind of follow along with me as I tell the story. I'll stop at different parts and read a verse or two, but you can follow along as I tell the entire story, and then we'll look at a few different points we can pull away from it. The story of Esther begins with the king of Persia, uh, who we believe historically was, was King Xerxes. Uh, so if, you, if you're a student of history, that's a pretty important name in, the, in the, you know, the annals of history. King Xerxes is a pretty well-known historical figure. And this story starts with King Xerxes, who in, uh, in the text is known as King Ahasuerus, also king, known as King Xerxes. He throws one of the biggest parties, royal parties, that the world has ever known. If you read chapter one, we see that this is a party that lasted over half a year, where there was exorbitant amounts of drinking taking place. All the nobles across all the kingdom were invited to come and just see the goodness and the wealth and the grandness of King Xerxes in all of his kingdom. In fact, half a chapter is given to go through the details of how that this no expense was, was spared for this epic royal party with King Xerxes. Well, right towards the end of this half-year-long party under King Xerxes, he's sitting there with a number of his royal men, and you can imagine the mood after half a year of partying and drinking a lot of alcohol. As he's sitting there, he's got his royal men around him, these other nobles from the community, and he, uh, he, he says to himself, you know, I'm married to a real beautiful woman. He goes, I'd like to show off her beauty to you. He's already proud of himself for throwing this big party, and now he wants to show off the one thing that he's most proud of, how beautiful his wife is. And so he calls his servants over. He says, bring Queen Vashti over and have her come dance before the men here so they can look at her beauty and see how proud I am and see what a mighty man I am. So the servants go to bring Queen Vashti, but Queen Vashti recognizes that she's just being used as a tool, and she refuses to come. She stays behind and refuses to dance before the king's men. Well, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, gets enraged. He, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He, he's so distraught that after a year of partying, everyone thinking he's the man, that somebody, let alone his wife, would dare to say no to him. He looks to the men around him and says, what should be done to punish this woman? They say, well, something severe should be done because if we don't punish her, the story of what Queen Vashti did to you saying no to you is going to travel to all the other women in the kingdom, and they're going to start saying no to their husbands. And so we've got to punish this woman real quick and real severe. And so he removes the queenhood from Queen Vashti. No longer is she to be royal. Then the men get around the king, and you can imagine the king now. He's a little depressed that he just lost his beautiful wife over this whole thing. Maybe it grew a little out of his control. But he says, what should I do now? And then the men say, here's what you should do. There's a lot of beautiful women in this kingdom, King Xerxes, and uh, you could have any one of them. 
So let's round up all the young virgins from across the entire kingdom of Persia. Let's just get all the most beautiful young women and have them come into a harem and we'll have them trained for a year in being the queen and then you can have your pick among any one of them. He says, that's a good idea. So he sends his men. They round up all the beautiful young virgins from across the entire kingdom of Persia to come into a year-long training process so that King Xerxes can pick his favorite one out from the bunch. Now, it just so happens that in the city of Susa, there is a Jewish man named Mordecai who's living there. The Jews had been exiled from Israel shortly previously, just under, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai, like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, had been taken out of Israel and was living in the city of Susa, which was part of Persia, underneath Xerxes. And he had adopted his younger cousin, who was named Esther. He was much older than her. Actually, today, when we retell the story of uh, Mordecai and Esther, many people think that Mordecai was her uncle, but the text very clearly says that they were cousins. He was much older than her, more than likely, and he had adopted her because, more than likely, during the exile, during that period when they were being brought out of Israel, Esther's parents had both been killed. So here she's a young girl being raised by her Jewish older cousin, and she was a young woman of extraordinary beauty. And so when the servants come through Susa, she is clearly picked to come into the king's harem and to be trained. Now, she gets there, and she begins her, what's called the year-long beautification process, is what the text tells us, being prepared to be presented before King Xerxes. Well, as it turns out, King Xerxes, when he first lays his eyes on her, he is quite breathtaking by her. She's a beautiful woman, and he immediately raises her up towards the top of her list of who he would choose And at the end of a year, he chooses her to become the queen. Now, this is God's providence over the entire situation. Of all the people he could have picked, here's this young Israeli girl who lost her parents, who's living as an exile, who happened to be chosen to come into the king's court, and now she's been chosen to replace Queen Vashti as the new queen over all of Persia. Around that same time, Mordecai, her older cousin who had adopted her, he's sitting in the, in, the, in the gates, which is what Jewish men did in communities at the time. It was the place where the elders went in order to get all the information of what was happening in the community. And as he's sitting there, he overhears two of the king's eunuchs having a conversation among themselves that they're so angry at King Xerxes that they're planning an assassination plot at him. Mordecai tells Esther, I've, I've, got a, I've got a person on the inside. I'm going to protect the king. So he whispers into Esther's ear, hey, there's these two guys who are going to kill, kill King Xerxes. And he goes up the chain of command. The plot is foiled, and Mordecai's name is written into a book chronicling all the events that have taken place underneath King Xerxes' reign. You've got to hold on to that piece of the story because that becomes very important later on. Meanwhile, uh, we are introduced to a man named Haman. Now, Haman is the arch-villain in this story. He's the king's right-hand man. In fact, as the story goes on, he's elevated. He's not only one of the king's closest advisors, but throughout the story, he continues to get elevated as the king's closest advisor. He has the ear of the king. What he says, the king listens to. Well, his prominence is so strong in the kingdom of Persia that there's a rule that gets passed that everyone has to bow to him when he walks through the streets. He's treated nearly as a god. Xerxes certainly would have been treated as a god. And Haman is right underneath him, almost like a demigod-type figure. When he walked through the streets, everyone would kneel. Well, one day Haman is walking through the streets of Susa. 
And as he walks through the streets of Susa, all the men and women are bowing down to him. He's wearing his nicest robes. He's feeling like a god himself. But he comes across an older Jewish man named Mordecai. And the people of God have never been too friendly at bowing to anyone besides God. Haman walks down the street. Everyone bows. Mordecai is sitting there looking at him. He refused to bow. Haman goes into an internal rage. He finds out who this man is, this Jewish man named Mordecai. He says, how dare he refuse to bow to me? His hatred for Mordecai becomes satanic. He not only hates Mordecai, but realizing that he is a Jew, a person of God in the Old Testament, he determines in his heart to annihilate the Jews. Before there was Hitler, there was Haman. Haman develops a plot to have a holocaust, to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. He's got the king's right hand. He's the king's right hand. He's got the ear of the king. So he goes to the king. He uses his power. The king is prone to sign any document that Haman puts before him because he's the king and he's got a wise counselor. Why would he not trust him? So Haman writes a court document that says, here's the plan. There's this group of people that are, you've taken in as an exile into your kingdom. He doesn't quite specify exactly who they are, but he says they don't follow your laws and they're rebels. Give me permission to wipe them off the face of the earth and your kingdom will be stronger. King Xerxes thinking, that sounds like a good idea. I don't want rebellious people living in my kingdom. Signs it, sends Haman off on his way. The letters go out to all the kingdom. On this date, every Jewish man, woman, and child will be annihilated in your towns. Every noble across the kingdom is given the instructions. Well, word comes to uh, Mordecai that this plan has been released. The Jews across the kingdom are beginning to fear. And uh, Mordecai begins to fast, crying out to God. He tears his garments. He's just broken over this reality. The date is soon approaching, and there seems to be nothing that can be done to save the people of God. They're weeping. They're fasting. Esther sees Mordecai. She he still has some relation with him, and, and she sees him crying, and, he, and, and she says to him, what's going on? He, passes, he ends up passing a note through another counselor. He got his hands on the actual court document that said that they could destroy the Jews on this particular day. He sends a copy of that to Esther. He says, Queen Esther, look at what Haman has written to do. Every one of us, every person, we're all going to be killed. That's why we're, we're fasting. That's why we're pleading right now. And then in Esther chapter 4, Esther has spoken, or Mordecai has spoken to Esther. He says, maybe you can do something. Maybe you can help. Esther says, that's certain death for me. See, see, the marriage between Esther and Xerxes didn't work the way marriages do today. She couldn't just go to the king and have a, a friendly conversation with him every time, anytime she chose. It was a formal relation. If anyone tried to talk to the king, including the queen, without formal permission, without the king granting permission, they were, ex they were, they were, uh, they were killed. Immediately. So Mordecai's saying, Esther, maybe you can do something for us. Esther's saying, if I go to the king, he will kill me if I just go on my own will. And then Mordecai has these words, perhaps the most important verses from the book of Esther. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. At this note from Mordecai, Esther realized her situation. At some point, the king will discover that I also am of Jewish descent. And when he does, I'll be killed, just like all the other Jews. And so it's either die now or die later. And so she plucked up her courage. She called all the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf, and she determined in her heart to go to the king. Now, she didn't just bolt into the king's chambers. She went about it with cunning. She went about it with a strategy. She prepared a banquet for the king, and she put herself in front of the king's presence where he would see her. When the king saw her, he was smitten by her. He loved her. He thought she was beautiful. He loved the new queen he had picked. And so he says, Esther, I see you. What can I do for you? He puts out his royal, what's the term, the scepter, so that she can put her hand on it, and that's a sign that she has permission to speak to the king. Already God is granting her favor in this moment. Esther says, King Xerxes, can, can, we, can, I, hold a, can I throw a feast for you? And can I throw it not only for you, but can I throw it for Haman as well? The two of you together, I'd like to throw a feast for you together tonight. He says, of course you can. So the king and Haman get invited to this feast. The, uh, king Xerxes says to Esther, Esther, ask me anything. I'll grant you up to half my kingdom. Now that's a bit of hyperbole, but what he's saying is, whatever you want, I'll give to you. I love you. She says, do me one favor. Tomorrow, tomorrow, will you and Haman come to a feast again? And I'll ask you tomorrow at that point for, for something. The king says, of course I will. Well, Haman goes out that night walking strong. And he's strutting through the streets of Susa like a peacock. He, he's been invited not only to be the right-hand man of King Xerxes, but now the queen is honoring him and the king alone. It's just them. Even the queen is thinking about how great he is. Now, that night, Haman's walking away from the feast and he walks by Mordecai once again. And he becomes so infuriated that Mordecai still, even after, even after the decree that all the Jews will be killed, still refuses to bow to the great and mighty Haman. He goes home and he's speaking to his wife and his family. He says, what should I do about this Mordecai? I just, even the queen's honoring me. And Mordecai won't even bow to me. What should I do? They say, here's what you should do. Build a gallows. Build a noose in the center of Susa, 50 cubits high. Build it as tall as you can in the center of everything, and tomorrow, bring Mordecai out and hang him on the gallows. That way, no one will ever think to not bow to you again. He says, now that's a good idea. So he has his servants go out, and they begin to construct a 50-foot-tall gallows to hang Mordecai on. Well, the next night, that night, as Haman's sleeping, King Xerxes just so happened that he wasn't able to sleep. He was restless all night long. You ever had one of those nights where you just couldn't sleep? He was rolling around, couldn't sleep, and he decides to get out of bed, and he decides to start combing through the books that had been written about his kingdom. And he just so happened to stumble across the chronicles of the kings of Persia, where it was written down that a man named Mordecai had saved him from assassination plots. See, it had been written down, but it had never been told to the king that it was Mordecai. And he begins to think to himself, who is this man that I never honored? So the next day, Haman walks into his, 
house, into Xerxes' court, and he's about to ask the king Xerxes, can I, you know, I want to kill this guy in Susa. You good if I go hang this man in the center square? But before he can get a word out to get permission to kill Mordecai, the king cuts him off, says, Haman, what do you think should happen to the man that God delights to honor? Haman says, well, in his heart he's thinking, oh, that's me. Well, King Xerxes, I think that you should parade him through the streets of Susa in the finest clothing. You should, you should pour wealth on him. You should give him a ring. You should, you should let everybody know that this is an extraordinary man. The king says, well, I like the sound of that. I'll tell you what. There's a guy named Mordecai that I read about last night that saved me. Can you do me a favor? Can you go make sure all of that happens for Mordecai? In fact, will you lead the parade? Because everyone honors you already. That way they'll really honor him. <laughs> Things have a way of coming back on us, don't they? So Haman has to swallow his pride. <laughs> this poor guy. Real sad for him. He's got to swallow his pride and he's got to go knock on Mordecai's door. Say, Mordecai, the king wants to honor you by parading you through the streets. And he's, been asked, he's asked me to lead the parade and to uh, give you all of these robes and wealth. Will you please accept it? And that day, Haman parades Mordecai through the streets. Now, Haman comes home from that just beside himself. He was already satanic. That's putting it, I think, seriously. Any man who gets mad at one person and decides to commit genocide is someone who's filled by some kind of demonic presence. Now he's, he's overflowing with rage. But he goes home, he says, what should happen? And his wife has these very wise words. He says, honey, you didn't tell me he was a Jew. He says, if, it, if this man's a Jew, if he's of the people of God, in other words, there's nothing you can do. Your time's already up. Haman doesn't quite know what to do, but he's called to a feast later that night with Esther and with the king. So he goes to the feast. As they're sitting there uh, at the feast, uh, the king again asks Esther. Now again, Haman's in this strange mood, but he's at the feast. He's trying to make the best of the situation. He's at this, and, and, and the king says, Esther, ask me anything, anything, up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Again, hyperbole, but he's saying, I'll give anything you want to you. Esther plucks up the courage now. This is the second night. She couldn't do it on the first night. She plucks up the courage and she says, King Xerxes, there is a plot to kill my people, to annihilate them. And I am of the people of God as well. I am of Jewish descent. And the man standing next to you has developed a plot and he has told all the leaders across your kingdom that on this day, every man, woman, and child should be killed. Haman fumes. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Xerxes fumes. He's angry at Haman. How could you do this to the people of my queen's descent? You didn't tell me that's what this was. He's raging, not quite sure what to do. And he walks out into the courtyard to walk off. While he's out, Haman, realizing the precarious situation he's in, falls down on Esther's lap, begging her for his life. At the moment he falls on her lap, the king walks back in. And he sees Haman on top of his wife. And he says, you would even assault my wife? He turns to the servants next to him. He says, what should I do? 
And the servants say, there happens to be a gallows that was just constructed today. In the center of Susa, he says, hang him on it now. They put a bag over his head. They march him into the town square. And that day, Haman is hanged on his own gallows that he constructed for Mordecai. King Xerxes turns to Esther, says, Esther, is there anything else I can do for you? She says, well, yeah. All my people are about to be killed. Can you protect them? So the king writes a new order. He says, the Jewish people who are in exile from Israel are granted free range to defend themselves from anyone who will attack them on this day. They are allowed to use any amount of force necessary. They can defend themselves. And so as the book of Esther follows through on this last day, the notes go out with speed. The fastest horses, the fastest servants go to the farthest end of the kingdom in order to let every Jewish person know, you are free to defend yourself. And on the day when evil men came from the, the corners of the kingdom, including in Susa, to attack every man, woman, and child of Jewish descent, the Jews defended themselves. And they gathered together, and on that day, hundreds of the enemies of the people of God were killed and every Jewish man, woman, and child was spared. And the Lord granted a deliverance for the people of God. To this day, Orthodox Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, which is the celebration of that day. It's the celebration of when God used Esther to deliver the enemies of the people of God into their hands in the moment when it was certain that they would not prevail in the moment when God's people were almost wiped off the face of the earth and God provided through a Jewish orphan from Israel who was raised, adopted by a man named Mordecai and by God's providence was ushered into the throne room of the greatest kingdom on the planet at the time. What do we do with this story? Well, I'd like to offer two two lessons for us. First of all, I just want to say this. What a story. You know, it's interesting, the book of Esther, uh, it's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. Not once. He doesn't come up at all. And yet, on almost every sentence, you see, you see God's thumbprint working through ordinary circumstances in a supernatural way. So what do we take from this? Well, I'm going to offer two lessons for us. First of all, is going to be in line with what I've done almost every single week in this summer sermon series. So if you've been with us, this will not be new to you. I'm going to suggest that Jesus is the greater Esther. Jesus is the greater Esther who has saved his people from certain death. This story of Esther is a true story in history. It actually happened in that way. And by the way, that story has happened on repeat countless times throughout history, continually to this day. God continues to save his people from certain death over and over again by the most obscure and amazing details. That's what God does. He protects his people. And yet, there's something about this story that very particularly points us towards Jesus and the story of the gospel. I've shown you throughout this summer series that Jesus has been the greater Ruth. He's been the greater Boaz. He's been the greater David. He's been the greater Joseph. And now, He's the greater Esther. How is that? Well, think of this. In the story of Esther, Haman was a great enemy to the people of God. And he was proud. You know, Haman's downfall, what Haman got wrong in life, was his pride. He he thought, he, he, he wanted to be godlike, like Xerxes. He wanted everyone to bow to him. And he could not stand that someone would dare to not honor him. 
And he was an enemy of the people of God. When, when they would not honor him, they, he wanted to destroy them. Well, to those who are astute uh, students of the Bible, you know that we have a true enemy, the devil. And if you know anything about the devil's origins, what was the sin that caused the devil to become the devil? It was pride. It was pride. We read in Ezekiel chapter 28, after a description of what is the king of Tyre, but, but after it, it begins to describe the king of Tyre in a way that's not speaking about the king of Tyre anymore. Now it's speaking about this angelic being who is so beautiful. He was the most beautiful of all God's creation. He was clothed in jewels. And then we read this in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. The devil is, in a sense, a type of Haman. He was so proud that he couldn't bear to not be God himself. And behind every great persecution on this earth of God's people, the devil has been lurking. And he has been looking for people to worship him. And the way he does that is if he can get people to not worship the one true God and to deflect that worship into any other place, he will receive that as worship to himself. And so he, the one thing he hates is a people that bow to one person alone, the God of the Bible, because of his pride. He can't handle it. Esther, like our King Jesus, Esther, Esther risked her life in order to intercede for the people of God. She plucked up the courage. It was almost a certain death sentence to go before the king and to ask anything of him. No one could do that. He was God on earth as far as the people were concerned. But she plucked up the courage and she risked her life to go before the king and touch the scepter and ask something bold of him. Jesus Christ went much further than that. He didn't only risk his life, but he gave his life to intercede for the people of God. See, the devil had a plan. The devil had a plan to wipe off the people of God, to destroy them. And that's you as well, by the way. In the Old Testament, the people of God were Jews. In the New Testament, those who have placed their faith in Jesus have been grafted into the family of God. And so all of the family of God who placed their faith in Jesus Christ are the sons and the daughters of God. And the devil wanted to wipe them away, but Jesus stepped into our place on the, on the cross, and, and he actually gave his whole life. And in that moment, what Jesus is doing is something even more profound than what Esther did. He sacrificed himself willingly so that we could have a relationship with God. And there is only one way on this planet for any human being to have a relationship with God, to walk with God, to be considered a child of God, and that's by faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection for what he's done for us. He's the greater Esther who not only offered himself, but truly gave himself over to death. Esther continued to intercede, didn't she? Esther didn't just ask once, but then she kept asking, well, okay, now will you protect them this way? Now will you do this? Romans chapter 8, verse 34, reads this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you know right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you if you're a follower of Christ? Here's what that means. Why is it that tonight, if you're a follower of Christ authentically, you will lay your head down on your pillow and still be a follower of Christ? It's because Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. It's not because you have any skills of your own. It's not because you've mustered the faith on your own. It's because we have a, a, a high priest named Jesus who intercedes constantly on our behalf. And he protects us in invisible ways that we can never see. 
Haman was hanged on his own gallows, wasn't he? We've seen this story play out already in this sermon series. Haman was hanged on the very thing that was meant to kill Mordecai. Haman was hanged on it. But we know that's exactly what happened to Satan. Satan tried to use death, the death of Jesus, to finally annihilate any plan that God had to save his people. And yet we read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we read this, that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. See, here's what happened. This is like Haman. It's like Haman's noose. The devil thought that if I can just kill Jesus and have him crucified, don't forget, we're told in the Gospel of Luke that the devil entered into Judas in order to betray Jesus. So who was orchestrating this thing? It was the devil. He thought if I can just have Jesus crucified, then any hope of salvation will be gone. Any hope that they'll be rescued from my plan will be over. And yet what did Jesus do? He used the very thing that was meant to kill him in order to free his people. He took death hostage. He went underneath death, and as it was, that was the very tool that would defeat Satan once and for all. Because through his death, the power that Satan had to deceive the nations from seeing God, who he really is, and knowing Jesus, has been triumphed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Satan has no power anymore. That's why the gospel is going to the nations as we speak. Because Jesus broke Satan's power to blind the nations from seeing God on his true terms. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and Satan meant to use that to put an end to it. He turned it into Haman's noose. He turned it against him. Lastly, Esther was adopted. I love this part of the story. Esther was adopted by Mordecai. This whole story of Esther is a story of a sweet young girl who was adopted by her older cousin when she had no parents. Our church loves adoption. We have adopted many, many children in this church. We step into many places of foster care and caring for orphans in this church. Why do we do that? Is that just something that we do to be nice? No, that's a central thread of the gospel. Romans chapter eight, verse 15 says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out the father. Did you know if you're a follower of Jesus that you've been adopted into God's family? This is what this means. You are not naturally born a child of God. Sometimes I go places and someone will hold a banner, a big poster up that says, you are a child of God. That's not true. Not everyone is born a child of God. You're born made in the image of God, but only those who have been adopted by placing their faith into Jesus Christ are children of God. And you receive the spirit of adoption entering into a familial relationship. I have two adopted daughters. And they are on equal terms with my biological daughter. Any, anything that's mine is equally split between all three of them. The love I have for my biological daughter is the same love I have for my adopted daughters. And so it is being adopted into the family. Jesus is the true biological son, if you'll put it that way. That's the best human language metaphor we can use. He's the true son, but you've been adopted in, and now the love of the father towards his son is shared with those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And he will never leave you nor forsake you any more than he would leave nor forsake Jesus. It can't be done. What's his is yours, and it's shared among you in Christ. Jesus is the greater Esther, who has saved us from an even greater enemy. Now, there's something else in this story that I want to lean into. Esther demonstrates a faith that courageously uses her assignment to push back against the Lord's enemies. Esther uses 
Esther demonstrates a faith that courageously uses her assignment, that means the lot in life that God's given her, to courageously push back against the Lord's enemies. Esther 4.14, let me read this verse to us again. This is the memory verse from the book of Esther, okay? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. This is what Mordecai said to Esther. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Why was Esther adopted by Mordecai, of all people? Why did God permit her parents to be killed during the exile? Why, of all the young women, was she chosen from Susa? Why was it that the king was restless in the middle of the night and, and, and happened to open the one book in his library that was written down about Mordecai, what Mordecai had done? Why, why, why did all of these things happen? It was because of God's providential hand orchestrating all events. And now, here comes Esther, and she is sitting in this moment in history where she happens to be in a position of influence among the one person who can actually do something about the tragedy that is about to befall her people. And she's got one of two options. She can sit passively in the face of evil. That's one thing she could do. No, No one was forcing her to step in and risk her neck to push back the darkness. Mordecai didn't say, I'm going to disown you if you don't do it. He said, you're going to die. But he didn't say, I'm going to disown you. She could have sat passively. She didn't have to exert courage. But both Mordecai and Esther had a sense of the sovereignty of God. Did you notice in Mordecai's words, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews. Where does that language come from? How does he know that? Well, because he's depending on the promises of God. His faith is so strong. He's sitting there saying this, I might die this week. That, that's what it's looking like. I might die this week, but I know this. God has written that his plan continues, that Messiah will come. And therefore, this cannot be the end. Now, Esther, I don't know if you've got a part to play in this or not, but Mordecai's sitting there going, I'm looking, and we got an insider and the king really likes you. He's smitten with you. Maybe God put you there for this moment. Maybe that's why you're there. One commentator writes this about the book of Esther. He says, in Esther, we're introduced to the mightiest king in the world at the height of his glory, King Xerxes. Yet in the book of Esther, he's only the second power. This is beautiful. His word has authority, but there is another word that dictates human affairs that speaks through the mouths of counselors, gives favor to Jewish maidens, robs kings of sleep, and inspires terror in the enemies of God's people. In the book of Esther, there is a power that is hidden from human eye, that manipulates events in ways that even the world's greatest monarch cannot resist. How did Esther then respond to this? So she she understands the providence of God. She's looking at her life and her circumstance, and she doesn't just see an accidental string of events. Now, keep in mind, She's a young girl who lost her parents in an exile from her land, raised by her cousin. She was in the king's harem. Like, yes, she's the queen, but okay, that, right? That, that's not exactly like the way you want to get married, okay? Her life was not easy. It was not a string of, look at God providing this beauty all the way. No, it was one string of horror after another. 
But, but the faith of the people of God, the faith of Mordecai and the faith of Esther was such that they didn't just see chaos. They didn't just see wickedness. They saw God's faithful providential hand guiding them into all their moments. And so, yes, did Mordecai tear his shirt open and lament and fast? Was he overcome with grief at the reality? Yes, of course. He's human. That's a proper response to this. But at the same time, did he lose sight of his faith and feel that all was lost? No, Christians can't do that. Christians can never lose sight of what God's doing. He's providentially guiding all things in your life, even when it looks like you can't see a way forward. She used cunning, didn't she? She didn't just run into the king. I, I have courage now. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna run into the king's office and just bang it, beg him. No, she didn't just do that. She used, she was sly. How do I do this? All right, I'm gonna throw a feast. I'm gonna serve a little wine. I'm gonna have good food. Who do I need there? I need Haman in the room. I need two knights here. Christians are to be wise as serpents, said Jesus, and gentle as doves. We, we, this is actually something Christians don't understand that I beg of you to understand from this sermon. We are in the midst of a war over the people of God and over our city. And that's strong language, but it's Jesus' language. Okay? So this is not just Pastor Rafe. That's what's happening. How do we do it? Do we just run into a street corner and... Well... Sure, some people do that. I don't think that's very effective. I think a better way to do it is to see faithful followers of Jesus in positions of power throughout our city and using that power, like Esther did, to change things. Use it in your schools. Be a teacher who stands for the glory of Jesus. Don't just lose your job right away. If you've got a position of authority to push back against the darkness, use your authority with cunning to change things. If you're a librarian, you know the situation with our libraries right now. Use your position of authority to change the sphere of influence that God has granted you. Don't just lose your job right away. Go in there and change it. There's a time to leave the job, absolutely. But there's also a time to be like Esther. Okay, if I throw two feasts and I get these people here, maybe, maybe something can happen. Maybe God's got you there. The devil is at work right now. Are our eyes open to see this? Our schools, our library, our politics, our media, our culture. This is, this is not, this should not be a surprise to the people of God. That's what the devil's been doing since the days of Esther. This is not new territory. This is, this is just biblical territory. There are real battles to fight. And before their politicians' battles, they get won in in the offices, in the homes, in the neighborhood conversations that you have. One of my burdens on my heart is that Christians today have settled for being sleepy on the job. We've forgotten that we are here for such a time as this. And that we have particular tools and, 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 and a stewardship of responsibilities that God has granted each one of us to step into the places that God has assigned us to push back against the darkness. Remember, Jesus told us to be salt and light. How can salt be salty if it's lost its saltiness? Jesus said it's not good for anything but to be thrown on the street and trampled upon. I don't want to be salty, saltless salt. I don't want to be trampled upon. I want to be salty. I want to be like Esther. We've forgotten that we're here to win souls who would otherwise spend an eternity in hell. 
And now, now you hear me say that, and I know that's like throwing the big extreme out there, right? But, but we're in this city, and we're here now. And does that burden you? Yes or no? It burdened Esther. It burdened Mordecai. Over the last few weeks, I've watched this church extraordinarily serve. A handful of circumstances rising up in, in the life of our church right now. And I've seen, Sarah and I sometimes sit back on our couch and I will just be talking about stuff. And, and, and recently, we've just been saying, we are being outserved by many of you in the church. Just, we're watching you open your homes and your lives and the way you care for people. It's, it's breathtaking. That's this church. It's, it's extraordinary. At the same time, I think that there's a lot of folks who are a little sleepy on the job and my heart is burdened for you because you're missing out on what you're doing as a Christian. Jesus has not left you here accidentally. He placed you here, John chapter 17. You're here right now. Christian, today there are 153 million children worldwide who are orphans. There are 443,000 children in America in foster care and in need of a home. Who knows if God has not placed you here for such a time as this? Today, there are 600,000 abortions every year in America. Those children need somebody to speak for them, to defend them, and to love them. Who knows if God has not placed you here for such a time as this? Today, there are still an estimated 7,400 unreached people groups. That means nations and tribes that have little to no access to the gospel. Those groups constitute over 3 billion people on our planet, many of them living in our city. Who knows if God has not placed you here for such a time as this? Christian, over 20,000 refugees and immigrants have been dropped off in Chicago and have been living on the curb in front of our police stations. Each one of us can have our political opinion of what ought to be done about this. I have my own political opinion of what ought to be done. But that does not change the fact that they are here and they're in need. Who knows if God has not placed you here for such a time as this? In 2022, the number of people who died by suicide hit a record high, 49,000 people in this country. Depression and loneliness are staggeringly high, especially among our youth who are addicted to social media. These are your office mates, your neighbors. They need Christ. Christ that heals the heart. Nothing else can solve this. Christ heals the heart. He's the answer. Jesus. There's no other answer. Who knows if you are not here for such a time as this? If God can use a sweet little adopted girl from Israel who lost her parents during an exile and was raised by her cousin and then drafted into a harem, how much more might he use you with all the wonderful resources that God's placed at your fingertips? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you, and we, <clears throat> we're in awe at the story of Esther. God, we know that you have had your hand over history, and you are guiding us as a church. You have your hand over our lives, and there are no accidents. God's providential hand guides all things. And, uh, and God, we, we want to have a heart that sees the world like you do. A lot of the wickedness that happened so subtly in front of our eyes, and God, just would you open our eyes, open our eyes that we would see things properly, that we would not be deceived. Help us, Jesus, to be Christ-like. And I pray for those that are here in, 
that are here in this room right now, Jesus, that are just hearing this message for the first time, that we are not here accidentally, that we have a commissioning from God, that you would inspire in them a sense of Christ-centered courage to be bold in Christ's name, to win many to Christ, and to see, to see the gospel go forward. In Christ's holy name, amen.